Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Today on the podcast, I am so excited that I get to speak with Jazz Sethi. Jazz Sethi is the founder and director of the Diabetes Foundation. This is a global movement to make those with type 1 diabetes feel heard, understood, supported, and celebrated. With a dedicated YouTube channel, monthly meetups, awareness tours, education programs, an advocacy drive, and several other very creative projects. She was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was just 13 years old and is currently on a pump, CGM, and DIY loop. She is the IDF's Young Leader of Diabetes for Southeast Asia for 2019, the 22 term representing India. The Diabetes Foundation works closely with Diabetes India, RSSDI, and the NHS of England for developing projects and publications. Jazz is also a certified diabetes educator and did her training with the IDF program. She is also a professional dancer, choreographer, theater artist, and a published author. She completed her training from Broadway Dance Center in New York and the AEF from Florence. Her mantra is simple, live happily and bolus regularly. And I am so excited I got to spend some time with her to learn more about her, the Diabetes Foundation, and many of the other amazing things that she does. Jazz, it is so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for the invite. And I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. So before we dive in, there's a lot to talk about because you do so much and so much amazing work. And before we dive in, um, can we start with your diagnosis story? How old were you? So I was 13 when I was diagnosed and um, it was pretty similar to everyone's diagnosis stories in terms of, you know, the symptoms that I was experiencing. I was, I lost like about five kgs in a week and uh, we were sort of preparing for a football match. And there was a lot of practice for the soccer match. And that's what I kept thinking that I'm losing weight and feeling thirsty because we're doing so much practice. But then my mom sort of looked at me and how the mothers look and they're like, no, something's not right. And we called up our family doctor and he asked to get a few tests and the results went directly to my doctor. And he said, just rush her to the hospital immediately. So my blood sugar diagnosis was 1050. And I was immediately put on into the ICU and I was declared type 1 diabetic. Wow. 1050. The typical diagnosis story, yes, everyone always has high blood sugar, but I think that is the highest that I've ever heard. And especially that you were, you know, still moving around and that you hadn't, you know, thankfully passed out or anything. That is you know, truly amazing. The doctor literally asked me, he was like, why are you not in a coma? And I was like, wow, that's a nice question to ask someone. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know how it happened, but my doctors also say that's the highest that they've ever seen, but it all worked out, thankfully. Thankfully. And I always say mother's intuition is like a thing. And all the moms I meet, sometimes they'll take their children to a few different doctors and those doctors might miss the diagnosis and say, oh, they're fine. But moms know like something is up. So there's a lot to be said for the the mommy intuition. It's like a special superpower. So well done to your mom. Yeah, for sure. And so when did you start the Diabetes Foundation? How did that come together? You know, so I went, so after I was diagnosed, I did not know anyone with type one. 
till I started diabetes. I did not have a single other diabetic. I didn't know anyone living with type 1 diabetes. And I kept thinking that that's not okay. Because, you know, um, I kept thinking that I was the only one in school. I was the only one in college who had it and things like that. Um, and there was always something in the back of my mind saying that something has to be done. Something I, I always kept thinking the type 1 diabetes was very boring on YouTube. I kept thinking that there was so much content out there, but it was so driven by healthcare professionals. And it was like doctors sitting on a gray background and giving you a two hour lecture. And I was like, for a 13 year old, that's not fun. So in 2018, we began the Diabetes Foundation and it started off as just wanting to be a YouTube channel. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to make it fun and interesting on YouTube. And then when we started meeting other people with type 1 diabetes, when we started understanding what the hotspots were, and it went beyond just it being boring on YouTube, it went into access, it went into education. And that's how we sort of grew. And we're four years strong now, and we have a lot of reach and a lot of projects in different areas of the healthcare sector. Amazing. I I love that. And I agree, diabetes online until very recently because yes. of people like you was, was ugly. It was always the bad news stories. It was the amputation. It was, it was everything that diabetes is really not. It's not all a bad news story. And so I'm so inspired and happy for people like you, because as the, the mother of a child with type one, that gives so much hope to younger children um, for the future. And you're such a great role model for doing that. What are some of the other programs that that you do? So we have a couple of projects. So under under, under diabetes, we have three different pillars, so to say. So one is awareness and access. One is education and one is support. Because I truly believe that for anyone living with type 1 diabetes, the three main things they require are access to a trained specialist, tools for self-management, and peer support. And we try to work around these three sort of areas. So some of the projects we do are education projects. So Project Kiran, for example, is inspired by my mother because she's an educationist as well. And it follows Harvard Gartner's multiple intelligence theory. It follows his differentiated instruction theory because what we realized through meeting people was that every child learns differently. Every child has a different learning style. So some might, someone is a kinesthetic learner, someone is a interpersonal learner, someone is a visual learner. So we try to figure out how we could cater to every child's learning needs by making type 1 diabetes education fun. So for the kinesthetic learner, we would have board games and card games, but they could learn by doing. For the visual learner, we have like a pocket book because visual learners like to read and like to understand. For the interpersonal learner who likes in groups, we have something where we do group interventions. So the idea is that no child should feel left out because they're not able to learn in one particular way. That's one of the projects which is really popular. Another project that is super popular is something called Back to Basics, where we do one-on-one counseling and education. Because at least in India, what we found is that a doctor spends maybe 30 to 40 seconds with a patient because of the overburdened healthcare system. So it's often very clinical. It's often very one-sided. It's about writing a prescription and giving it out, but never really sitting and talking and understanding the person, understanding the life behind type 1 diabetes and not just what keeps you alive. I think that's two very different things. 
So sitting with them, understanding with them, talking to them, learning from them, teaching them. So the back to basic session is something super, super popular. And then finally, our Daya meets, which is the support group parties. We just had one last Sunday. We're having one this Sunday as well, hopefully um, in person. But it's about celebrating type 1 diabetes. It's about meeting people just like you. And it's really about bringing it out of the darkness and into the light. That's really beautiful. And I love that you focus on those areas because that is that is so true. If you're doing it right, you might go see your doctor maybe four times a year, but diabetes is with you, you know, the other 361 days and you're not even with your doctor a whole day. So it's, it's really, really important to have that extra support and that information. And I love that you've thought, you've thought it out in a very scientific way as well to speak to so many different learning styles I think that is really amazing. And, you know, you've been diagnosed for a while, but at the same time, it hasn't been that long. And you've come up with all these amazing tools and different things to reach and help so many people. That's incredible. Was there ever a time that you found diabetes challenging personally? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, when you're in the early years and you don't know what's happening inside you, there's a constant battle. Um, I was diagnosed just as I was getting into puberty as well. And uh, I think I gave my parents a lot of trouble in retrospect. I was super hormonal as a teenager. But uh, there was a time when, you know, you know, those kind of, and as a mother, I'm sure you know as well, that there are times when you can do everything right, but still it doesn't work out the way you want it to. And uh, there was a time like that in the middle um, where I was constantly just getting hypos and hypers and I was not able to understand. And that kind of feeling of helplessness when you're not able to control your own body. I think that is something that is absolutely frustrating uh, because you feel like at least you should have control over your body. You should have control over what's in your hands. And when it felt like it's out of hand. So there was a time when I, I was 15 or 16, everything was just going non-stop roller coaster and I remember I was in severe diabetes burnout and I woke up one night after like my fifth hypo and just thinking that I'm not gonna correct this let's see what happens it was just this sort of sense of absolute defeat you know it was like I, I've done this five times I've gotten up I've woken up I've lost sleep over it so and I, I give it to the fact that I was just not educated I totally give it to the fact that I was living with it. I will, I speak from a place of privilege when I say I had complete access to all the medication, but I'd never had access to type 1 diabetes education because it just wasn't offered. It just was not provided. So that's why I keep saying till today that it's not enough giving. When we talk about access, we unfortunately only talk about access to insulin. We don't talk about access to management. So I keep saying it's not enough giving just free insulin unless that child doesn't know what to do with it. It's equally dangerous just giving someone free insulin because they could just completely take it wrong and again, end up in a, in an outcome that we don't want. So it has to go hand in hand. You're absolutely right. One thing that I've noticed that really surprised me um, over the years was, okay, people have education about insulin and how to use it, but nothing else beyond that. And diabetes is so much more. And one thing in particular is sick day management how to use glucagon. I was meeting moms that didn't even know glucagon existed. And yep. then after, I mean, I hadn't met any parents of children with diabetes for several years, but as I started to meet more and more, it was like, you know, this amazing, like, oh my gosh, tell us more. You've used glucagon. And what was that like? And, 
and what, what did you do? And I mean, it, it is a very scary thing because by the time it comes to that time where you have to use a glucagon, for sure, it's very terrifying and scaring. But the number of parents that were not educated about that with access, as you point out, was, was really, really baffling. So the again, actually, I, I did not know about it till I was 20 years old. And I was, none of us knew about it. Our doctors till today do not tell us about glucagon. So wow. and I found out about it after I passed out with a hypo and I didn't have it with me. And none of us knew, none of us knew that there was something like this that existed. So I totally understand what you're, what you're saying. Oh my goodness. Dear doctors, we love you. <laughs> if you're out there, if, if you're, if you're listening out there, please, please emphasize the importance of glucagon. And yes. has the inhalable glucagon come to India yet? Not yet. Not yet. It only recently came here to the UAE. And just at my son's last visit, we got some, yeah. um, which is pretty exciting. I hope he never has to use it. Yes, I've exactly. done the, yeah, I've used the injectable one on him twice. And both times were terrifying, both because of stomach virus and, you know, they, they eat, you give insulin and there's insulin on board. And then when they vomit, then the insulin's still working, but no food was ingested. So, so yeah, those are pretty scary times. And I think a, a lot of the parents that have never had to use it, but they have the inhalable one, they feel a lot more confident if they ever had to. So hopefully not, and, you know, you never have that experience, but one thing a doctor, I, I was, I was blessed. And again, like you say, coming from a place of privilege, while we didn't know anybody that had diabetes and there were no pediatric endocrinologists here because I grew up in Houston, Texas, I went back home and stayed with my parents and I was able to go to one of the leading children's hospitals in the world where I had no idea at the time, the doctor that they were assigning me to was one of the leading doctors in pediatric endocrinology in type one diabetes. I had no idea about all of this, but that was incredible. And I learned so much from him. And the one thing he said to me about glucagon and hypos, he said, it's not a matter of if you will use it, it's a matter of when you will use it. So you need to learn how to do all these things. And especially because you're living in a place where you're going to go back and you're going to be by yourself and you can't just like pick up the phone and call somebody, even though I was calling him a lot or emailing him all the time with all my questions. So, so yeah, these, these things and understanding how, how they work and why we need them and how to use them. And even practicing, if you have a, a pharmacy, instead of throwing away anything that's expired, why not use that for, for education for your patients? I take all our old kits and I take them to the school and then they train all the school nurses how, how to use it. So I never throw them away. Or I always say like, I'm preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Like I'll keep the expired ones just in case. Upcycling. <laughs> and, you're, you're the epitome of upcycling. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And so one thing that recently caught my attention following you on, on social media, which, which I love your, your feed and your dancing is beautiful. And I want to ask you about that as well. But one thing recently that I really loved is all the myth busting that you've started doing that is so needed. Please tell me more about that. So I think uh, we work a lot on language matters. I think that's something that I have become so passionate about. And we sort of worked with the NHS to get the language matters India guide out. And this was back in 2019 or 20 pre-pandemic. 
actually we launched it and um, it was developed over a course of six months to really talk about language not just being between the healthcare professionals and the people with diabetes but also about language that we put out into the world so general messages I think and I really have found to believe that stigma arises when you think you know enough or when you know enough of the wrong thing you know and uh, it's because of messages that we put out into the world so so something I'm very passionate about is language matters and what sort of evolved from that was this message one of the key principles of the Indian language matters document is called type the type where we talk about anything that you put out in the world it has to have correct information so when you're talking about diabetes remission you can't just say diabetes remission you have to say type 2 diabetes remission so uh we had this campaign called call it out where it was enough of hiding enough of complaining about with each other saying oh my god they're not doing enough or they're not typing we said we're just gonna call it out we're just gonna call out the nonsense and we're gonna call out the fake myths and the false cures and the false promises and we're gonna make them understand that it's not okay because we were sort of faced with these outcomes which were just terrible we had parents going in completely unaware and I don't give it it's not the parents fault you know when you're just recently diagnosed you don't know about types yourself so when people use hope as clickbait it's not okay and we have to have the courage to call it out whatever the repercussions may be and we've got people in India who are really really big and um, I mean when you're on the right side of history I think it's okay I have just written down what you just said. When people use hope as clickbait, it is not okay. For the people in the back that did not hear that, that is so true. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And it drives all all of us mad. And like you said, parents with newly diagnosed children, or even people with type two that are newly diagnosed. We want to find, first of all, why did this happen? How did this happen? And how can we fix it? I was desperately searching. I searched so many white papers, so many alternative medicine things. I I looked everywhere. And I even went to, there's a wonderful um, kind of integrated medicine center here. And I even went there because I, I would go there myself for, you know, acupuncture and some other things. And I met with the naturopath there shortly after my son was diagnosed and to ask her like, what can I do? And you know what she did? She got up and she gave me a hug. Wow. (laughs) Because she even knew, thankfully, you know, she had the wisdom to know that there was no cure for this. There might be some things that I can do to, you know, support his health, but there are a lot of people or a lot of institutions out there that do. Um, And even somebody just reached out to us. And often I'll get a lot of calls when someone has a newly diagnosed child because they're looking for, you know, the cure, how can I fix it? And it is, you know, challenging and heartbreaking to, to sit there and have to really, you know, tell them. And I do a lot more, of course, listening than, than talking because when they need to feel heard, they need to feel understood but then I have to tell them that, you know, look, there, there is no cure, but that will not stop you from living a full, healthy life. But we, we just had um, somebody reach out to us asking us, you know, about stem cells and mm-hmm. can I go to a clinic and just get injected and be fine? And we all know there's a lot of great research and advances 
in stem cell research, particularly for type one diabetes and a lot of exciting things happening, but it's, there is no cure yet. If there was, we wouldn't be having this, this conversation and, or we would be having a very different kind of conversation, but there's clinics out there that are marketing that they do have the cure. And I've seen doctors present it in medical meetings where they have patients that go to these clinics, they spend their life savings on these miracle cures only, you know, then a few weeks later that their child is back in DKA. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for calling it out. I, I really love that. And it's, it's incredibly important because it happens in every country all over the world. Yeah. And, and and the place where I come from, which like from India, we have it, we, we have people who are using our blood sugars as a business um, marketing tool. And it's, uh, I've personally witnessed kids who have gone again, parents desperate for hope, desperate for any kind of a um, cure from insulin, and they are ready to try anything. So, firstly, to educate the parents, there's that certain group of parents that we can educate, and they sort of understand that okay, it's not possible. But there is this group of parents that are so so adamant that no, they're gonna try anything not realizing that it's their child's health. Again, the ch- a child is small, can't speak for himself or herself. So, and then we have people using that section of people who are desperate to propagate their own, um, I don't know what their sort of cause in life is as well, but whatever their purpose is, but it's about, and then, <laughs> you know, we've gotten such angry emails and angry messages post this call it out because we've been unabashed when we're putting people's faces out there. We're putting people's names out there, not really caring who you are. I mean, you're not doing something correct. So that's why I said it requires a lot of courage, but you will be helping maybe three families out there who would have gone if you had not called it out. So try to think of that side of the the spectrum. That's, that's really true. I do love that. And here we have, well, nobody, I I can say I've not seen any of these miracle cure offerings here in the UAE where I'm living in the U S there's a lot. And very high profile cases where children have died because parents were wanting to believe into whatever was being offered. And if I come across, because I follow, I get the Google alerts, you know, for diabetes in my inbox every day, you can sign up for it. And I would say, I don't always read them now because it's kind of overwhelming, but I would say at least twice a week, there's, you know, this miracle cure or eat four blueberries a day and cure your diabetes. I'm not kidding. Um, Stuff like that. The latest superfood every other week, there's a new superfood that's going to cure it or fix it. And not just for type one, this is for type two as well, that they're really targeting because, you know, diabetes is a huge industry in many people's eyes and it is, but they're, they're missing the whole point. So here we can't really, you know, call people out because then the way the law is structured, if somebody complained, then, you know, the person doing the calling out could get in trouble, but be sure if it's, if it's back in the U S and I see something on social media, I will comment. Um, I will say this is misleading. And, you know, there's even sometimes in groups, uh, mom groups, they're like, Hey, there's this clinic that is saying this, like I've already gone there and commented and then other moms will go comment. And it's usually, you know, very, very professional, not, not to slander anybody, but, you know, when people start calling different things or they say, oh, you know, 
or the other thing they do, they talk about people with diabetes and shaming and blaming people with diabetes is another um, point that I really kind of go crazy over. And my son was diagnosed at 20 months old. So when they make the correlation, like, oh yeah, if people with diabetes just didn't eat fast food. And I was like, yeah, my son at at 20 months old was just like slamming down fast food. (laughs) He wasn't, (laughs) he ate extremely healthy and I made all the baby food myself from all the wholesome organic things I could get my hands on. But that whole misconception, because it doesn't serve people to shame and blame them. And then of course they're going to hide their diabetes. They're maybe not going to take care of themselves as well. They're going to feel bad about it. And it's, it's just, it's wrong at so many levels, all of that miracle cure, shaming and blaming and the whole thing. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I, I love that you're doing that. And I think everybody needs to speak up when they, when they see that, because that has to stop for the future of everyone with diabetes with the diagnosis, or if you've been diagnosed for some time, also for people with type two diabetes, because as we know, no two people are alike, everyone's body, everyone's microbiome is completely different. So what worked for one person, for example, I've met a woman and and she was always talking about how she reversed her diabetes by just, you know, juicing all the time and doing all the stuff and even using reverse or remission in the context of type two, I think can be very a slippery slope and very tricky because if you stopped juicing and you went back to eating even just a balanced meal, your body may still react with some insulin resistance. It may not have been cured. So that is super tricky. And then I would be speaking somewhere or talking with a group of people. And then someone would often come up to me afterwards not an obese person, not, not overweight, healthy. And I'll never forget this one woman. She's very small, petite, and she was almost crying. And she said, "Uh, you understand me. You get it. She had type two diabetes, didn't know why. And she never felt heard because people were just like, oh, we'll just eat healthy and do this and do that. And she was already doing that, but she still, her body, for whatever reason, decided it wanted to be insulin resistant. So a lot of these, you know, fake cures and empty promises are harmful at a very, very deep emotional level. And people are not even thinking or not even caring about the repercussions it's having. Well, so true, because I think we have to be so careful about the messages we put out there because things said in jest also um, sort of deep root into your subconscious and you start believing the things that you hear outside. So I think even as a type one diabetes community, we need to be really careful not to talk about type two being the easier type and type one being the more difficult type, because I've seen that happening as well on social media. And this is not a competition at the end of the day. You know, everyone is is facing an internal battle that you don't know about. So, and I think specifically as people who are living with a condition who that we know is so difficult, it's not fair to typecast someone else as saying you have you have it easier because no one has it easier, you know. So, I think very important that we just stop typecasting things, being very accurate about the information we put up, and being very very empathetic and non-judgmental about the information we put out as well. I absolutely agree. Like the no type of diabetes is easy. It doesn't matter 
And even people with the best intentions say things to people with diabetes and within their family, sometimes even doctors without thinking or nurses say things that they never thought that they think it's helpful or something. And, and it's actually really not. And it's, it's, again, it's nobody's fault, but it's just because like you said, everyone is walking in their shoes, fighting their own battle and some things resonate very deeply with people. There's a few people out there that, you know, they say, Oh, I'm not bothered by these things. But like you said, subconsciously at some level, maybe they are. Which is why we even try to tell doctors all the time that do not use scare tactics, do not do fear mongering. You know, uh, those pictures of amputated legs, it's just not okay. And it's just giving all the wrong messages. And, you know, the side of their story is no, but they should know about complications, which I completely agree to. I completely agree that people with diabetes need to know about complications that are possible, but you need to make people aware with care. And I think that care aspect gets missed when you just slam down a picture of an amputated leg. There was this thing going around with like the ice cream stick being as a leg and there was an ice cream cone as a leg. And I, yes. Oh, I saw that picture. And I think in the show notes, I'll find it and I'll try to find it and we'll put it in the show notes so you can see it. I, I hate the thought of even having it on our website, but you need to see this. And I, but it's not okay. Yeah. No, it's not okay. And when I looked at that picture, and it wasn't like uh, my heart sinking as if sometimes when I'm, I'm sad, when I hear of a new diagnosis or something like this, it felt, oh, it was disturbing. It, it yes. was, it just, it's anger. very disturbing anger. Yes. I think it was a very deep anger and there's, you know, nothing funny about it. Um, I've gone all out when I, once there was a very famous, American comedian has a very famous, like one of these late night shows and Jimmy Kimmel made, made some joke about diabetes and it was on his Twitter because somebody sent him something. And I went, I went really nuts (laughs) on that. (laughs) I did. And, and to the point where, you know, I, I kind of had to, to stop. And so what I decided was like always calling these things out, it's counterproductive sometimes I'll still, I'll still call it out. But then I said, okay, if I put as much energy in for a guy, that's probably not even going to read it into creating content that's positive and helping other people or talking to people like you, then that will serve a lot more people. Absolutely. Even though if I ever see that man walking down the street, (laughs) even though this happened like four or five years ago and be like, yo, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, we need to talk. We need to talk. (laughs) It's not okay. It's not okay. Um, so, so yeah, he, he did, there were a lot of people commenting, you know, about it, but I just thought, no, it's not okay. And especially when, when, you know, people in the public eye and famous people do it, it it seems to have, cause you know, it has a bigger impact because people are listening to them more. So there's that. And now a word from our sponsor dialogue. The diapoint podcast is brought to you by the diapoint shop. Diapoint is a place for people touched by diabetes. We support people through education, events, services, and advocacy, as well as with beautiful diabetes accessories sold in the D-Shop. Visit diapointshop.com to see all of the wonderful, useful things that we have to support you in your health, wellness, and diabetes. We offer the highest quality possible 
and have tried or regularly use most of the items in the shop ourselves. Check out www.diapointshop.com now to get the latest in health, wellness, and accessories. Now back to the show. So tell us about your dancing, because it's really beautiful, the clips you post online. Thank you so much for that. That's so nice. I began dancing when I was five. And then I just knew that this was something I absolutely fell in love with. Um, And so I went to New York. I went to Broadway Dance Center over there and um, did a certification course over there. And then I studied performance studies in Florence, in Italy, which is what I have my diploma in. So I love, I love performing. I love telling stories. And I think time and space can tell stories in very different ways. And I try to use that part of my brain when it comes to diabetes as well. How do you put a more creative spin to things? How do you maybe do a performance? Um, and telling stories can come in different mediums. And I think we try to include that in the work we do as well. So I keep saying that my passion was always dance and performance. And I found my purpose with diabetes. And diabetes is where my passion met my purpose. And that's what diabetes is a little baby of. Oh, wow. That's really beautiful. I love that. Did you ever find a time when it was challenging dancing and managing diabetes at the same time? Yeah, I keep saying this at all, like wherever I'm giving a talk that when I was diagnosed, I thought that I would have to stop dancing because I didn't know better. But uh, you know what I realized towards the end was that things were different, but nothing changed. So I would still have my eight hour rehearsal. But the difference was now that I would check multiple times. I would have a pre-snack. I would take a little bit of a rest in the middle. I would inform my colleagues about it. It didn't change. The eight hours still stayed eight hours. But the things I would do to prepare for it was slightly different. And I think that's that's life with type 1 diabetes. And nothing has to change about your life. Things are just going to be a little different. And difference is not always bad. I, I love that. Actually, and then... People that I see, because we know there's also a lot of athletes with diabetes and other things like that. And what I tell some people, it it kind of becomes like a superpower because you have to really know when you're able to have optimal performance because your blood sugar has to be in range for you to be feeling your best, performing at your best. So, you know, it's almost unfair is like athletes have this amazing advantage where they know what their blood sugar should be to get the best performance. And no people without diabetes are not, they don't need to check it. So maybe sure. There's probably other indicators they're, they're looking at to understand different things, but it it really can, can help you instead of hinder you in, in many ways, I think. Absolutely. I think it's a blessing in disguise. So you can really, you know, use your passion to control your sugars better. Who would have thought? <laughs> I Right. I, it's, it's true. It's true. So I see you dancing on Instagram. Do you also have your performances on YouTube or anywhere else that people can watch them? Yes, there are a couple of on YouTube. And then we also do, I mean, of course, in pandemic, no, but we have uh, live performances happening throughout the year. Um, and in fact, I am working on a performance piece uh, about type 1 diabetes. It's been in the works for a couple of years now and not to disclose too much, but it's the idea of having an invisible illness, so to say. And um, how do we depict that in a visible sense so that people can understand? 
because I feel like performance is such a beautiful way to make the unseen seen on stage. So um, we are working on something where we can try to make that invisible illness visible on stage. So hopefully that comes up and hopefully with this pandemic goes, we can have a live performance of this concept. That would be amazing. I can't wait to see this. And <laughs> you come to UAE I, to perform live over there. <laughs> well, this is what I was just going to say. I want, I would love to see that here. Yes. Um, and there's been a lot of shows happening. Um, like, you know, and I love here that the way they've opened, but they have like safe um, seating if it's indoors and different things right. like that. So Yes, you must come. Oh my goodness. Okay. This is this is great. This is really exciting. Wonderful. And is it, yeah, you you answered my next question. I was going to say so what's what's next? <laughs> you you already answered it. What else are you working on? Definitely something that's coming up. We just started something really fun. It's called Blue Force Network and it's the Diabetes Youth Wing. Um because I was very curious to know like in a juvenile condition, so to say, why are adults doing all the talking? And I do consider myself an adult now. I sleep earlier, so adult. <laughs> but, but I was just very curious to know what does advocacy look like for a 12-year-old? Or what does education look like for an 8-year-old? And I think that's the kind of pedagogy that the Blue Force Network explores. It's about what does standing up for their type 1 diabetes mean for these young kids. So the Blue Force Network is really exploring that. It's exploring what advocacy looks like for the youth. So all our members are under 15 years old and the stuff that they come up with, the content that they come up with, it's got a very fresh perspective to it because we see type 1 diabetes in a slightly different sense. And then they they counsel younger kids themselves. So younger kids that who have been just diagnosed, uh, there's one thing when an adult is sort of telling them that I also have type 1 diabetes, but it's still there's an age gap. But when an eight-year-old is counseling an eight-year-old, it's an absolutely beautiful uh, view and a sight to see because you see the camaraderie grow right from there. So that's something that we are really, really excited about as well. I love that. And I would love to hear your lessons learned from that. I think that is so important. And because of the pandemic, you know, we've not had these kind of meetups where kids can meet other kids. And I'm yeah. mindful of that also for my, my son, who's now 13, because once he said to me, for example, we are, you know, meeting up with some moms and children and, and he's like, you know, just because we have diabetes, we don't have to be like friends. I said, no, you don't, you don't have to be, you know, Absolutely. I said, but you know, there may be some kids that are newly diagnosed and maybe they have some questions for you. And I never force him to be involved in anything that diapoint does on the contrary, actually. Um, because it's it's his decision and they need to feel comfortable. And I think you're right about adults imposing, you know, certain things like, hey, I really want to advocate for this and and you should too. But that, you know, isn't really a win-win situation in the end. It can actually backfire and go the other way. So for them to feel heard by their peers and have a safe space where they don't feel like there's an adult behind it is so important. And you, you say you're an adult. I, I don't even want to know how old you are. Cause I'm probably like twice your age. So, you know, I'll tell you like about my habits and then you'll be like, Oh my gosh, no, I'm a spring chicken. You are, very, you're very young. So no, <laughs> you're a young adult, but still young. very young. All right. We'll just add. the young. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
<laughs> no, this uh, concept of I, I think this whole concept of getting getting old, that's a whole nother kind of podcast oh, yeah. discussion, but never happens. Stay never young happens. always. Age is just Stay a number. Age is just a number. And I so I always our blood sugars. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes, yes. I mean, of course, we have to be mindful of them. Yes. One thing that I kind of I don't know if I don't want to say learned or that I came to terms with is that when you have a number, because it can really give you a lot of anxiety when, oh my goodness, it's, it's so high. When is it going to go down? And especially early in diagnosis and somewhere along the way, that song, you know, what goes up must come down. I think the song is called spinning wheel. I won't sing because then I'll have like no (laughs) listeners of the podcast, the few that we've gotten so far. Um, But I just started thinking, okay, it's up, but it's going to come down. And, you know, just, this is a number in time in the moment. And that's why I'm so happy that now clinically they're starting to look more at time and range. A1C I think is still valid to look at, especially in countries where you don't have access always to, or you can't afford um, a CGM or other things. So I'm happy that people are now looking at more than just one number, but it is just a moment in time. And if you get very philosophical about it, you know, that's really all we have, right? It's just that moment in time. If you want to be, you know, very live in the present, I try not to live too much in the past and try, I'm still as a mom, always looking to the future to try to anticipate it. Um, what's yeah. going to happen? He's eating this. He's done this activity. What should we do? You know, this little artificial intelligence that's swimming yeah. around yeah. in my brain. But I try to just remember that it is that moment in time. And I think that also stems back to the first doctor that we had. He did such a great job of kind of coaching me. And I think he would coach his patients. And when we went back once, he he retired a few years after we saw him, but the one time that we did go back and then we checked the A1C and it was higher than I would have liked. And he just kind of shrugged it off. And I was like, well, that's like a really weird reaction for a doctor. And he's like, you know, you didn't get the number you wanted this time. So, you know, you need to work on some things and change some things and for next time. And that was it. And he didn't say anything else about it. And I was, I was just expecting, you know, I was waiting for this, like, oh, you should do this. You should do better. And that really kind of helped me say, okay, how can we improve? What can we do better? Because otherwise we get too caught up in the numbers. Absolutely. And I think we have to understand that we are a name before we are a number and we are a story before we are a statistic. And I think it can be um, very overwhelming when your just body is covered with so many numbers but to understand there's beyond that, there's more to life than just a number. Uh, you're right. I think this A1C story, I think I'm so glad that there are doctors out there who instill this in their patients and in the parents, because I was yesterday talking to someone and she was like, oh my God, she was flipping out about her fact that the, the A1C was 6.7 and she wanted a six. And I was like, bro, calm down. 6.7, you're fine. Like, no, why is it six? And I was like, Type 1 diabetes is not a place where you can be a perfectionist. Okay, things are going to go up and down. That's life. So I'm so glad. I think that's more kind of people that we need. We need people to be like, hey, it's fine. Just work harder next time. That's it. 
So yeah, he was a real trailblazer. And I'm happy to say, because I was invited to a few meetings, the Arab Society of Pediatric Endocrinology here to give a parent perspective so that when they invite young upcoming endocrinologists and diabetologists, and they would do education that they could hear from, you know, someone managing it and living it. But that whole kind of positive outlook and getting them to empathize with their patients more and things like this. And I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a great number. And even by the international standard, that's, that's below the standard, you know, we try to get as close to the standard as we can. And if, if it's, you know, unexpectedly low, I I'll never forget the first time. And my son was really, really small. And I thought it was going to be a horrible number. We went and got it checked. And then they sent me the results. That's back when they had to do the blood draw. Right. And it was like a 6.8. And I, I cried because I couldn't believe it. I thought we had, we were going to like vomit, fail the test. <laughs> and, and, you know, we always kind of strive to be around that number now yeah. if we can, but he's 13. So there's a lot going on and, you know, he's getting his independence and maybe he needs to have a chat with you because you've been through this at that age. And, oh, yeah. you know, your mom, you're gonna have a wild time till he's about 19. You, you I know, know my doctor literally told my parents that do not come to me till she's 19 because the sugars are gonna go up and down between 13 to 19. She's so like, and after 19, everything's gonna sort out. And it's literally what oh. happened. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I actually <laughs> my heart sank a little bit inside earlier in our discussion when you said, yeah, when I was 15, I was really difficult. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh my gosh, he's only 13. <laughs> you mean like two, two more in two more years, it's going to get worse. And he's an amazing kid, like amazingly responsible. He's smart. He knows it all. But, you know, as a parent, always the parent child relationship and you're always, you know, even though I say, yeah, you know, it can't be perfect, but you're still always trying to do better. And just that as in a young 13 year old, that's trying to find their own way. It always creates that, you know, kind of parent child clash. It's sometimes whenever he wants. Oh, thank you. Yeah. When you say I'm the young adult over here. So I think the young, (laughs) he listens to young adults. He listens to young adults. Yep. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So before we go, um, I always try to, like you said, you're a story before the statistic. And whenever interviewing people with diabetes, I always love to hear more about their personal lives and what they do. And you've shared your dancing with us. Um, and, you know, just to make people understand that people with diabetes, they're not just all about the diabetes, even though people like you are out there advocating and constantly trying to make it better for everyone else. But can you tell us some other things that you like to do in your free time? Do you have free time? (laughs) Good question. So uh, I think the last few years have been uh, really sort of type one diabetes, diabetes, but I do like to write a lot. So um, I do have a blog, which is everything but diabetes because so much of my life is just diabetes. So uh, I have a blog called all that jazz.blog. And um, so, I mean, I, I like to write, though I don't get time to, but I like to write about just musings and poetry and things like that. I have published a 
book called If Only Words Could Breathe. And that's all poetry as well. Um, and dancing is a big part of my life. I love, I, I play the piano. So I like to find time to do that as well. And then just hanging with friends, traveling a little bit if possible, spending time with family, simple, basic, love reading. So try to do that as much as I can as well. Amazing. We will put links for everything in the show notes. I want, I want, I want your book and I, I can't get it. Me. When I come and see you in Dubai, I'm going to give you the copy. Oh, and will you sign it for me? I, I really, I'm so excited and, and I'm excited to hear that you have a blog. I love the name of it. All that jazz. <laughs> I'm sure it's amazing. Jazz, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank I you appreciate you. So I appreciate the way you inspire people and all of the things that you're doing to make things better for people with diabetes. It's absolutely incredible and inspiring for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. And you two are doing such an amazing job. And I'm so happy that we could find this time to do this and upwards and onwards. Thank you so much. I really loved this conversation. I want to, again, thank Jazz for joining me to talk about all the amazing things that she's doing and her wisdom. I feel like almost everything that she said was very poetical, very poignant, with very few words, some very powerful quotes um, and very powerful thoughts. And she's really making a difference and having such an impact in the world. Um, I feel so privileged and, and honored just to to know her and to have been able to speak to her today. So thank you again, Jazz. We really appreciate everything that you do. And thank you all for listening to the podcast. You can find it on all your favorite podcast channels. And if you like what you heard, please share it with someone or leave us a comment.